0: Hello, you are very welcome to another episode of Fascinated with me, Geroad Farrelly. I've interviewed a lot of former pop stars and I absolutely love those interviews. The drive, ambition and hard graft that it takes to end up on top of the pops in your teens is not to be underestimated. Those that can harness those qualities and move on to something else after the limelight fades really have the power to make a difference. And Joe Yule is one of these people. I've known about Jo Yule's story for some time and she was one of those people that I've been trying to interview since day one. We finally got together for a chat two weeks ago in a room at the Leicester Square Theatre in London.
1: This
0: line to... Jo Yule played gigs around her hometown of Hull as part of a band which didn't have a name. On the way to a meeting with a record label, they decided that they needed one and they took their name from a train ticket and they became Cheap Day Return which is a brilliant name for a band. She continued playing piano and making demos with her friends. One of these friends was her school friend, Cheryl Parker. When they left school, they decided to go down to London and try their luck at getting a record deal. They became the duo Scarlet and signed a publishing deal with Chrysalis and a record deal with Warner Music and released their debut album, Naked.
1: Now, it's nice to have have really big hit makers here because Independent Love Song has been such a great hit for you. Now,
0: if you're the same age as me, and even if you don't remember Scarlett, there's no way you got out of the 90s without, at some point, swaying along to this. They released more singles and a follow-up album called Chemistry. They played live all over Europe and the UK, supporting Wet 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 and Brian Ferry on major arena tours. When the band ended, Jo continued songwriting and continued with another part of her life, which had been running alongside her time as a musician. Before, during and after her time in the band, Jo volunteered as a Samaritan, which is something that she did at Central London Samaritan Office for 10 years. She then went on to work at Missing People, a charity whose mission it is to provide a lifeline when somebody disappears. In 2012, having held various posts at the organisation, Jo was promoted to CEO. Jo Yall
1: is Chief Executive of the charity Missing People. How yes. common are these... Well, this case is highly unusual uh, for a child maybe to be abducted, to be taken away is unusual. Thankfully, but the scale of she is passionate about
0: the rights of vulnerable children and adults. Some of her achievements include helping to found the English Coalition for Runaway Children, securing the OFCOM award to provide the 116,000 helpline for missing children in the UK and Europe, and developing specialist support services for families, including a bespoke counselling service. In 2014, Joe received Third Sector's Rising Chief Executive Award and in 2016 led the charity to be ranked as the 18th best not-for-profit to work for in the annual Sunday Times list. Before I started doing a bit of research for this interview, I didn't know that much about missing people. I was a kid in the 80s and I remember the anxious conversations of every adult at the time when Philip Cairns disappeared. I watched The Search for Madeleine McCann on TV and I was horrified at the recent documentary on the Mary Boyle case. But beyond that, I've never had that experience of thinking that somebody I loved was missing. In fact, I think there is something in my brain that shorts out whenever I even try to imagine it. And to be honest, I'm actually quite grateful for that. I'm not a journalist and in actual fact I'm a complete softie and this interview I think reflects both of those things. (laughs) In the lead up to chatting to Joe I pored over the missing people website and I was astonished at the statistics and I have to admit I have shed a tear when putting this episode together. This is the fantastic Joe Yule. I've
1: had a bit of a strange career. (laughs) Yeah, It's been a bit of a journey let's say.
0: Yeah exactly it's been two journeys. At the moment now, you are the CEO of Missing People. But also, if you go back a little bit further, you were a rocker. Yes. In your day.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) There's plenty of uh, photographs online of you dressed in Baroque outfits with frilly cuffs and playing the piano on top of the pops.
1: Listen, you've already made my day because you recognise me in Leicester Square. (laughs) So I thought well if you can recognize me from a photo that's not bad going.
0: Yeah well you look exactly the same you <laughs> no haven't red changed. Hair, though. No, no red, red hair. hair no 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 different and less makeup more, yes. t- more tastefully done. <laughs> <laughs>
1: there was a lot of makeup back then wasn't
0: there? There was yeah I was I was looking at some photographs and yeah it was really caked on and you were so, you're Yeah. I didn't think when when I watched some uh, some interviews with you for for missing people I noticed how much you smile whereas back in the day you were so stoic at the piano. <laughs>
1: I remember when we met a designer to help us get our look together for Scarlett and a guy called Anthony Price, who did a lot of work with Brian Ferry back in the day, and me and Cheryl Singer turned up to meet him and he said, right girls, so what, you know, what's your image, what do you want to look like? And we were just, yeah, like this really, jeans and a (laughs) t-shirt, and he set to work on us and it was a bit of a strange experience, they looked at me, he got the scissors out, cut my fringe slapped on a, an absolute shed load of makeup, as you can tell from the photos, um, and then proceeded to design these amazing clothes for us. And after a while, they started to really feel like our clothes, and I've still got them hung up at home, and I can't bear to throw them away. Oh, I don't know no. what we do with things like that, really. Yeah,
0: they're relics. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so when, when did you start? When did the band get together?
1: So I met Cheryl at school and I was playing the piano in a GCSE music lesson and she came over to me and asked if I could teach her to play the piano uh, which is a bit random, I've never, yeah. never taught anyone to play the piano, I didn't really consider I could play, play that well myself and so we I started to teach her a few basic chords but of course she's got a great ear for music and she just picked it up really quickly And she used to get on a bike, come round my house up in Hull, and we'd faff about and write music and play smoke fags in my mum and dad's dining room. And that's really how it started. Uh, Began doing a few gigs, uh, playing locally, my dad had drivers with a keyboard in the boot, off to do a few gigs. Not in dissimilar places to this, we're sitting in a theatre today, but you know, pubs and small theatres and the Adelphi Club in Hull, which is quite well known for some of its more famous people that have played there, Beautiful South, House Martin. Oh, wow. So Quite a good music scene going on in Hull at that time, which we were pleased to be part of. Um, Recorded some demos and Cheryl was always the one that was pushing us to get in a studio, "Let's, let's take this demo and let's play it to Paul Heaton from the Beautiful South, which we did. Oh, wow. So we uh, rocked up at his house one day in Hull, and I don't think I'd have ever had the nerve to do that, but Cheryl did, and she was already a fan of House Martins. We knocked on his door and, she, and Cheryl said, you know, will you give us a listen, Paul? And he went, yeah, I'll meet you at the end of the road in half an hour. So we went off down the road and hung about a bit, and then he, true to his word, came down and said, yeah, sounds all right, that. Wow. Well, yeah, got a bit of a melody there. And then he set off his question that we never answered and said to us, well, one of you can sing and one of you can't sing. Uh, but we didn't ever knew who it was, and I remember me and her having a bit of a row on top of the bus on the way home. She said, well, if you sing, uh, I can't really do anything else, so uh, why don't you play the piano and I'll sing? And we're like, yeah. So that was, that was the start <laughs> So of on the
0: top of a bus. In yeah. Hull. That was how Scarlett was born. Yeah. How did it snowball then into, because you were signed to Warner, how did that happen?
1: So there were three of us originally, and as opposed to go to university, we decided to move to London uh, and try and make it big. And off we went. I and mean, I always remember my dad, and I told him I wasn't going to university and I was moving down to London with that kind of trepidation you'd have. He went, yeah, love, think that's the right thing to do. And I'll always remember that conversation because think having that kind of backing wow. means a lot. And it wasn't really the expected thing that I was going to do that. And we really blagged our way into record labels, publishing companies... I met some amazing people along the way. One guy who sticks in my mind is Gary Crowley, who used to host a radio programme on GLR. And he heard us play and was like, you know what, girls, you've really got something here. And he introduced us to other people. But what we used to do was pack up the keyboard, which was sizeable, uh, put it on a golf trolley and push it all over London. So walking today up the steps at Leicester Square, thinking, I've carried that bloody keyboard all over central London and then we'd set up and play in people's offices and we never used to tell them in advance that's what we were going to do and some people loved it and some people hated us setting up in front of them and playing and we did hear a story uh, that we turned up with our latest songs to play to a, one of the guys at the publishing company and somebody else Crawled underneath the office so that we wouldn't see them. So they didn't. So, no you know, way. But it, it, who cares because it worked. Yeah. And the guy that signed us at Chrysalis, it was a publishing company, and a guy called Stuart Slater, and went, You know what, girls, if you've got the guts to do this, you're going to make it happen somehow. And he signed us and then helped us to get a recording deal, which we got with Warner Music um, and by Gary Crowley and sign there and we were playing we were writing loads of songs at that point and we'd always turn up to Stuart who was a bit like Dad at that point to us, bearing in mind we we're nineteen, twenty. Yeah, yeah. And we used to turn up and play all these songs and he said to us one day, Do you know what, girls, you need to write me something different. You've got to pack it in with all these love songs. And he got a guitar out and he was quite accustomed to this, kind of bounding around his office put his foot on the desk, played us a few chords, and he went, we want an indie song, you know, because the indie scene was happening. Yeah,
0: it was all, it was, back then it was very blur and oasis and all of that sort of stuff.
1: And we said, we don't really write indie music, you know, We, we, we play piano and we write proper songs. Anyway, we went away and said, well, do you know what, sod him, we'll write him an indie song, and we wrote him an independent love song.
0: Oh, wow.
1: So we carried on writing love songs. We just made it independent. And of course, it was never indie. But we went back and we said, So we've written you an indie song and played an independent love song. And thank the Lord for that, huh?
0: Yeah. I mean, because that was a massive hit. It was a I big mean, hit. It's still, even today, it was only in the past week I was in the car and it came on. Like, everyone remembers that song. And it, was in, it went into a movie as well, didn't it? It
1: did. It was in Bed of Roses. The uh, Christian Slater film. Yeah. On their dance scene, okay. yeah, no, no dialogue, just the music. But it was quite a proud moment that, because yeah, it's it nice to hear whatever you've written uh, on the big screen like that. We went to see it, and and it was one of those experiences that sits in probably my in top twenty, not not my top oh, wow. ten of all time, but it's it's way up there to yeah. have a song like that in a film.
0: That's amazing. I actually i, I have a story about that from the other side, and that is somebody else that I interviewed, she, uh, she won the Eurovision Song Contest and she signed a deal and uh, went to Nashville to make an album, and her record label told her that, I think it was her second single, was the love theme for Bed of Roses. And in a TV interview where she performed the songs, <laughs> she told everyone, like it was the Late Late Show in Ireland, and there was never anything more about it and like that she went with her family to see this, and it wasn't in it. Oh. And it was only when they are at the credits, they're like, no, it definitely, it definitely wasn't in it. Like, but the record label were just shit. Like they never told her. Oh. So I think it was Independent Love Song they used instead. <laughs> would you say sorry for me? I will, yeah. I definitely will. Yeah, I'll see you next week.
1: Make her a cup of tea and say, yeah. Joseph, sorry just about that, I'm that really, one.
0: really sorry. But she had a lovely moment. <laughs> so when you, you did the first album then, uh, and then you would go away and write a follow-up, um, but when you did the first album, like you did a lot of touring and stuff, didn't you? Like you, you supported Wet 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 at yeah. the uh, uh, was it Wembley of, Arena. Or yeah, a...
1: we we played Wembley. We played very big venues with Wet Wet Wet, and I think I lost about a stone because I couldn't eat for the entire six weeks. It was the most <laughs> nerve wracking thing I think I've ever done. Yeah. To go out and play to that sort of size audience, ten thousand people, and there were a, there were a few moments I can remember. At Wembley and Cheryl having an absolute meltdown because it was such a big deal, all our families were there. You know, it doesn't really matter how big the place is. If you've got your mum on the front row, oh. your best mate, somebody you went to school with, it's those people that throw you in those, those Absolutely, moments. Absolutely,
0: yeah. I yeah. remember
1: Cheryl having a, a, a proper meltdown and us pacing around the back of Wembley and me giving her a bit of a pep talk and trying to calm ourselves down. And then we, we go on stage and she walks out. I've never seen her look more confident. And I was an absolute nervous wreck. Couldn't remember my chords or anything. <laughs> so they've, they've been quite... That was that was quite a tour to go on, and we also supported Brian Ferry. And in a way, supporting Brian Ferry and playing the whole City Hall, of course, and yeah. playing Sheffield City Hall, which is where I'm from, those were absolute top nights. Yeah. And still got the photos of the doing the whole gig, uh, going back to the local hotel, everyone having a few drinks, and back to my mum and dad's where it all kind of kicked off. And it's those moments that I yeah. remember more than anything. And those gigs that were a real highlight when you've got all your family there, my brother.
0: Yeah, it must be incredible. Especially, it's interesting that your dad, when he said, you know, okay, that, yeah, that's the right thing to do, off you go. As opposed to going back there and feeling you have something to prove because they were against it, you know, that's, which is a completely different ballgame. Yeah,
1: I didn't feel like I had to prove anything, but it was kind of nice because it's my dad who... Uh, inspired me because he plays piano and he always says now you know what love if we have never had a piano you'd never have played and you'd have never been in a band which is a bit self-evident but when friends of mine now say shall I buy a piano for my kids at home I'm like yeah you know just buy it see what happens and my dad played and so he understood what it was like to get up there and play Um, and nerve-wracking and actually in my job now as CEO of Missing People standing up And speaking to audiences is easier than playing the piano. Bizarrely, when I was in a band, I felt a bit of a fraud. Really? I always used to think, well, I don't know what qualifies me for this. And the guys that were in our band, brilliant musicians, uh, and I'd hear, we'd be in a recording studio, and I'd hear this sort of brilliant piano line coming from the back of the studio, and it was the bass player. So I think for me it was more, I was more of a creative, I can play the piano and I can write songs, but I never felt like I was a real top-notch musician in the way some of the amazing people that are all over those records, and recently helped record a single for the charity of which I'm CEO of. So a couple wow. of the guys, uh, Stuart Ross and Julian Dixon, came in for free and played on our charity single that was released few weeks ago and that's a nice moment where yeah, of course. Two, two worlds collide. and it was done remotely i didn't even see them which is not the same anymore is it so they Yeah and were
0: you involved at all in the in the thing
1: No i no. no i've not been involved in that and just supported and let fly within missing people for something like that to happen Yeah very much driven by a colleague and friend of mine Claire Cook who said you know let's we could do a single and we could release it and we could try and capture something of what it's like for families to have somebody missing yeah and there's nothing more emotive than that of course yeah um, but then we brought in loads of friends and Chesney Hawks who's a real pal of uh, ours came in and sang on that and other people that I've written with Rosalie Dayton and Steve Balsamo and various people Came in and sang on that, so there was a real nice moment for me of feeling like life had gone full circle and yeah. I was back in that kind of music world again.
0: And what was it like when you when you wrote your se- go away and write a second album? You know, when you'd had the success and all of that stuff, and then the pressure mounts for, you know, okay, do it again, girls.
1: There's, there's pressure on that, and I always remember once we went away for a weekend to Filey, which is on the coast up in, in the north, and we had this perfect setup for writing songs. And it was just really difficult to write songs. And I always think now, you know, if you want to do something creative, it doesn't matter where you are, sit down and do it, you don't need the perfect setup second album was trickier. Cheryl wanted to write an album that was much more guitar-based, so I felt like I'd got to master the art of playing the guitar on the piano. So trying to mimic a guitar on the piano, which I think to an extent I did, and the second album certainly stands up, but it never felt to me that it was the heart and soul of Scarlet. It felt like we'd half-written maybe somebody else's album for them rather than our own experience. I think when we were signed to Warners, we were sent a really early demo of an Alanis Morissette album, her first album, which blew us away and blew lots of people away. It was an amazing album. And I think particularly for Cheryl, she loved it and she wanted to do something that was in that kind of world. Okay. So it felt a long way from where we were as a kind of duo writing songs on piano and quite naively doing that. And I think that may be showed in the second album, which didn't have a success, and I didn't expect it to, so okay. my kind of disappointment happened before we released that album, because I didn't feel like it had that same vibe that we'd had before. So I am a stereotype, because we kind of fell victim to the challenge of a second album, and didn't make it happen in that way, and it was sad, and yeah. and an end of an era.
0: I'm, I'm always so curious about when people decide, oh, that's it, it's done. Like, do you is it a case of when you know the record company falls away, or or do you just
1: do you know what? Maybe technically there's a moment in time when that was the case. I can't remember it in that way. It just felt that it was on the decline, and I was glad for the other things that were going on in my life. So I was involved with Samaritans, which actually was my kind of bridge into the. Now the third sector, yeah. working working in the, in the charity sector. So I'd always been a Samaritan right from when I first came down to London. Slightly bizarrely, I joined the Samaritans because I wanted to be involved in something like that and help other people and give other people support because I'd always had tremendous support. And I joined the Samaritans in a way to escape the music world, which can be a bit crazy. Yeah. And at Samaritans ended up meeting, it was right based in the heart of Soho, which is where it is now. In fact, a couple of roads away from where we're sitting and met loads of artists and actors and musicians. So I ended up in a, in a similar world, but doing something very different, supporting people in the, in the toughest times of their life. Yeah. So I'd always had that right the way through the music. I was always trucking off on a Sunday night to do my four hour shift at Central London Samaritans and the odd night shift, um, wow. which runs through the night. And then I'd get up and carry on with the music the next morning and try and not look as knackered as I felt. I
0: can imagine, yeah, because I mean, it, the Samaritans and, and working in the charity sector must feel so important by comparison to working in entertainment, which can feel so flimsy. Like, I mean, at, at the absolute best of times, it can feel very uh, insignificant sometimes. you know. I mean, people enjoy themselves, I'm thinking, talking in terms of comedy, but then you, you walk away from it you go, Like my sister's a nurse. (laughs) I'm never going to top that.
1: I mean, maybe Um, you might say, some people might say the same thing about comedy. And I think music connects with people in a way that situations or work can't in in the same way. So it reaches out to people. So when, you know, you touch somebody at a moment in time with a song, don't you? And people remember songs for a reason and they help you through times and they become a theme tune of an era. And so I think music's really important and that creativity around making something new that people can resonate and connect with is really important. And similarly, with the work at Samaritans, it never felt so different. It was about connecting with people through listening and words in a way that we tried to do through music and words. And so creatively, and now in uh, my role at Missing People, a lot of my job is to try and explain to people what it's like to live with somebody uh, and who's missing, to have them there and not there, not know where they are, and how to convey that and, and get masses of the population to understand what that feels like. And to me, it's a similar challenge of connecting with someone through music and through lyrics, uh, is how do you sum up an experience in words that connects with yeah. people? And if you can do that, if I can do that in my job and you can do that with writing a song and you can do that standing in a theatre like this and making people laugh, then that's really important.
0: You're in charge of the overall strategy, I suppose, of, of missing people. When did that begin?
1: So I took over in the hot seat about three and a half years ago and needless to say, I was a little bit of a reluctant CEO hadn't really imagined that that would be a job that I would do. Um, The job I loved leading into that was I led the team that uh, provides all of the national services for the charity missing people. It was my proudest moment to get that job because I really felt like I could use lots of learning from other places and from Samaritans to work out how best to support people who are living in some of the worst situations you could imagine. And I was director of services and then our previous chief exec, Martin, who's a pal, and also I sort of felt dropped me in it a bit, said to me, what are you thinking of, Jo? I'm off. What, what you? What's your next step? And I had no idea what he was on about and he, he said, well, you should consider running, leading this organisation. So it felt like walking from my office, director of services, a few months passed in the meantime and all the mm-hmm. usual recruitment type stuff. But walking from my office into the slightly bigger CEO office was a a bit of a moment. And um, I really felt what it was like over some chairs. So I looked at the office and I thought, I can't move in that; It doesn't really look like me. And we had these really cool chairs, brightly coloured, that were sitting in reception at Missing People. They were low down. They're quite creative. And I could just see them in this room. So I stood in reception one night, having painted the office pink, because that's our charity colour, And I stood in reception, looked at these chairs and thought, right, I'm going to have them bloody chairs in my office because it feels creative and I want that kind of atmosphere. And I thought, right, who do I ask? And then I had that moment of, I don't need to ask anybody, right? It's you. (laughs) (laughs) So so I took the chairs, which are now in my office, and they twizzle round, and I've had lots of people uh, for meetings, the head of the National Crime Agency, head of chief constable of the police forces, members of parliament funders, the founders of the charity sat on these swizzly chairs in my office. But it feels right because it feels creative. Uh, It feels like an organisation that connects with the people we're trying to support, that there's no distinction between the team that supports people, families and people who are missing and ourselves because it could happen to any of us, God forbid. And thinking about 250,000 people a year going missing. Yeah, I, I read that statistic, something.
0: and I, I couldn't believe it. I, I, I read it about a week ago, and since then, I've said it to people, you know, just saying, how, how many do you think... Uh, and it's, it's so funny, because I said it to a friend over the weekend who said, oh, I'd say it's a lot, like, I'd say it's about 2,000. And that's children, isn't it?
1: So in the UK, 100, 140,000 children, and overall 250,000 people. Thankfully, most people are found within a few days... Although, any time you're missing is a time of vulnerability, and there's yeah. one thing I've learned to be at Missing People and to talk to people who are missing, children and adults, is nobody stands up and walks out of their own life lightly. It's not a trivial yeah. thing. Uh, people will say, and you know, our, one of our patrons is Stephen Fry, who talked about his experience of, of going missing, and he was in the middle of a theatre production, and he said he... He wasn't feeling great. He stood up and walked out of the theatre and just kept on walking. He didn't decide necessarily, right, I'm gonna go missing, but he just kept on walking. And I think all of us can relate to the feeling of, things are getting a bit much. I'm gonna take a bit of a stroll. I'm gonna get some fresh air. I need to get away for a little while. That general feeling that you can experience when things are too much to bear and people I've spoken to and we speak to at Missing People who, who go missing are often at the most vulnerable point in their lives and usually a combination of things happening that makes them feel that they need to get away or that their families will be better off without them or young guy that I spoke to who we were appealing for and we knew he was missing in where we're at today in this uh, around Soho and he rang in and I spoke to him and he said I've just seen a poster for myself, a 15 year old guy um, and he said can I just ask who's looking for me because I didn't think that there was anybody in my life that would report me missing and there is that awful thought that to be missing somebody has to miss you And so when you go back to those figures, the 250,000, they're people that have been reported missing and there are other missing people that nobody's reported missing. And so the work that we do to appeal for people and the 24-7 services that we provide, so someone can ring missing people day or night and we'll get through to someone and they're the sort of people you'd, you'd want to speak to in a crisis. They're people that are empathetic, that don't sit in judgment over people. They help, support, they care, they're kind, but they're also really experienced and knowledgeable about the sort of help that is out there and sometimes help link people back with their family. And I've been in that situation of passing a message through to someone, uh, someone's mum um, saying we've heard from your daughter and is it okay if I pass a message from her and we've relayed messages backwards and forwards and help them reconnect and it's quite a moment.
0: Yeah that must be it must be so, so amazing and, but, uh, but I saw you speak as well about that sometimes when you do pass a message back the, the people aren't interested. That happens must be horrendous.
1: and our team are trained to work out if there are safeguarding issues because if somebody leaves home it might be because there's something going on that's very wrong, that they're very unhappy about that they're actually unsafe so it's so important that we explore with someone why do they go missing what was it about, what was going on for them and I've passed messages and our team have where we spoke to someone also probably at their wits end going you know, I can't cope anymore and I'm no longer able to be in touch with my partner or my child, um, and therefore we would then work with the missing person to try and get them other help, and we and we d- we do that. And sadly, people go missing because something has broken down quite badly at home or in a relationship. Yeah, and children that have run away from care homes uh, and feel like they really got nowhere else to go, God. and our team there to support them in that.
0: Is it very? Uh, even thinking about th- this interview today. Uh, last night I could feel it really weighing heavy because there was a sense of that there is no there can be, there's almost nothing light around the subject of missing people because it's worse than the person dying. I think if it's a relative that goes missing, it's, it is worse because you, 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 you can't grieve or, you know, it's just this never-ending thing. It, do you find that it, is it a very, are you always aware of that responsibility?
1: always and I remember meeting a family and they have talked openly about their son being missing, Um, he's called Matthew and I went to meet them at their house a few years ago, not long after I'd taken over this job and met them at the house and talked about Matthew and they shared their experience of, of him being missing, they showed me some of his scrapbooks and photograph albums and one of the lovely stories in that I left on the Friday night had been there a good couple of hours they were really emotional so was I and got on the train and as I I was leaving Pauline had wrapped me up some biscuits in some foil and I got on the train back into London and it was quite late and I was really hungry and opened up and there's some custard creams and I always think never underestimate the power of a custard cream because they thought of me on that night having just poured their hearts out and I've written up that experience into a chapter of a book and, and then a few weeks ago, they got a call to say that Matthew had been found and he'd been wow. missing for six years. And that's the call that they had been waiting for, for all of that time. And the, the reason that missing people as an organisation, as a service, as an ethos is optimistic is that there's always hope. Yeah. And families would always say that. And that might be hope that one day they know what's happened to their child or their husband or wife or mum or dad. There's always that hope. And it might be that it's the worst possible outcome for some people, yeah. that their missing person, unfortunately, it has died. And families. some families would say that they just want to know. Yeah. There's a psychological torment in not knowing the outcome. I mean, we're, we're, even with stories, you always want to know the ending. I know. The,
0: the most vivid recollection I have of a missing person is in the 80s, I remember there was a kid in Dublin called Philip Cairns who went missing. And what I remember most about that story is my mother's reaction. I remember, and I remember everyone that the, all the adults spoke about this. The whole time and I remember her warning us, sitting us down and telling us we always have to know where you are you know and I just I felt I really felt that anxiety. Everybody wanted to know how that story would end and even at the moment that the case is developing now but it's it's one of those things that I always as soon as you see Philip Kearns or you hear about it you're just drawn to it immediately because it's it feels so unfinished.
1: And just even reading about him and the heartache that his father's passed away and the time he's been missing, so he never knew, he never had an answer of of what happened to his boy, who would now be in his 40s, I believe. Yeah. And that, I think, to some parents is just excruciating. And the mum that we work closely with saying she will fight to a dying day to find out what happened to her child. The thing that I've experienced in the last few years and the thing that I love about the society that we live in is how much people do care about this so your mum talking about Philip and and her care and love for you and not wanting that to happen to you and not wanting another family to be in that situation when we launch appeals for missing children and missing adults the amount of support we get from people that retweet uh, an appeal that we send out via Twitter that follow us on Facebook and share appeals in their community who go out and search when somebody's missing in their community, who support families who do sponsored runs for the charity, to be there with other families, I mean that's the kind of world I want to live in and that's the thing that drives me forward is to connect with members of the public to help other families that are in that situation and some people will help through support, some people will make donations to the charity um, and all of that support means such a lot for families who are missing someone and also for missing people themselves to know that when you go missing uh, that people care about that and would want to find you. There's something very kind of emotional about that is a real deep sense of humanity about care for another person, somebody that you may never have even met. You don't know them and yet you'd get up and you'd help in the search for someone who's missing. And that touches me and that makes our jobs a lot easier to do at the charity.
0: How involved is the charity in say the investigation? You know, do you have to liaise with police?
1: Great question. (laughs) We, We work with every local police force and we work nationally with the the National Crime Agency. Any person that we appeal for via our website or social media has always been um, released with permission from police forces and family because we need the agreement that it's okay to search for them. Sometimes uh, people go missing and they need to stay missing. It might be that they are escaping horrendous domestic violence, an abusive situation, there's something that we just don't know about. And at the charity, okay. we don't always have the whole story. So if the police, the family get in touch with us and wants us to appeal, we'll always check that that's okay and get the consent to appeal for that person and it's a big deal if any of us went missing imagining walking back into your own life having had your poster with your face on it it's very personal to have that part of your life exposed in that way so we always make sure that we get the agreement and also as soon as someone's been found and you know people are found every day that we take that publicity down as soon as possible and allow people to move on we also meet people when they've been missing and they've come back so we provide a service to support children who've been missing and that's quite incredible to find out what happened when they were missing what extra support do they need so the story doesn't yeah. stop there we want to be a lifeline when someone disappears um, and
0: how do you keep a story alive you know it, it, someone has gone missing say four or five years ago and the family are still you know obviously still devastated but i suppose the media aren't interested because it's a it's a news cycle that's just moved on how do does a normal family who are not involved in the media and they're also suffering this terrible loss. How do you keep a story alive?
1: For families, they would always say it's so important to keep the search alive and you know if it was my child that went missing if it was your child that went missing you'd want the world to stop and search so you get to the heart of the issue here and one of the main reasons why the charity exists is to make sure that that kind of publicity can happen as much as possible for loads of different people that go missing there is a draw into the the mystery of why someone goes missing where are they we need an end to this story, and that's not just families suffering the devastation. It's other people too. And so, when the media do uh, feature, say, Madeline, they often, and we would often suggest other. Uh, cases of missing children to be alongside so that we can appeal for more than one child in in that. We do the big tweet every year, so on the 25th of May we send out appeals every half an hour for a missing child and that gets retweeted by all sorts of people, you know, Margaret from Holland, J.K. Rowling and you know uh, people that can sit there on the sofa and, and really spread the word and we find that people are intrigued and do want to know Anniversaries and birthdays are a really key time. And uh, Nikki Durbin, whose son Luke has been missing just um, recently for 10 years, came to us and said, I would like to mark the anniversary of him being missing. I need the world to know that he's still missing and that I still miss him. There's a real emotional God. connection there. And so we were able to do extra publicity, which we try to do for as many families as possible to get those appeals out again and to say, you know, it's his birthday today and his dad and his mom want to know where he is. So we'll, we'll do special campaigns or publicity around those key moments in time. And it's so important to do yeah, that yeah. and use every opportunity we can because sadly people go missing every day when we're approached by media to do interviews there's usually a story that we can tell and i've done lots of media interviews and i've been touched by the interest that we get and that people empathise and think, you know, if that was somebody that I knew, if that was somebody in my family, my God, I'd want that appeal to be out there. And so we support families and families lead it themselves as well. As you'll be aware, yeah. some families um, are able to do that. And other families struggle more and that's where we can come in and support them as they support the charity with our campaigns as well.
0: You do have moments, uh, I think particularly when you're touring, like I just say to my parents or to my parents, you know, I'm to London or I'm going to... Yeah. You know, I think sometimes if you stop And and think, you know, there's absolutely nobody in the world that knows where I am. It's quite a terrifying... It's both terrifying and empowering at the same time. And that must be what the draw is. I don't know.
1: You know, sadly, some people go missing and also are suicidal at the time of going missing. And I can't imagine a much lonelier place. And we've got an amazing service where we get the... With Agreement of Family, get the mobile number and send them a text from the charity saying, We're here. Yeah. We're here to talk, and people respond to that, because we've reached them in that moment, um, and, and I, and I love amazing. that to, to get to them at, at that point. You know, I, I always remember this amazing quote and um, by a child psychologist called Winnicott, and he said, it's a joy to be hidden, and a disaster not to be found. And to me, that sums it up, which is why we'd always have that drive to at least reach someone that's missing and give them that chance to reconnect. some weird weird moments where life has gone full circle so really for me to kind of sum this up right at the um, in the last sort of couple of years I had to go um, and be on stage uh, to talk about the charity and it was with one of our partners at the time called Rock Choir and it happened to be at Birmingham NEC where I'd played oh my god and, <laughs> and then I did the same at Wembley so I've had Two moments on the same stages, one in completely different <laughs> one playing the piano and one stood there talking to the audience and in trying to engage the audience and it wasn't difficult to talk about people that are missing and most people in rock choir that were there that day, well everyone is there with their rock choir friends yeah, yeah, and family yeah. and related to what we were doing, and it was just a thought in my head. Did you have a (laughs) favourite?
0: You played it twice once as you were playing in the band and the other... Good
1: question. I think I found it easier to stand up and talk, even though it felt a bit like an out-of-body experience. I still now get mild palpitations if I see the sign for the NEC, because approaching that in the minibus in the band (laughs) was one of the most nerve-wracking things I've ever done.
0: That was the fantastic Joe Yule there. If you would like more information about Missing People, you can have a look on missingpeople.org.uk and if you're not feeling good, make sure you have a chat with somebody. The number for the Samaritans in Ireland and the UK is 16-123. If you liked what you heard, Scarlett's first album, Naked, is available on iTunes. I think the rest of their stuff you could probably get on discogs.com if you want the rest of the back catalogue. Also, you heard a clip of it during the interview. The Missing People charity single, I hope, is also on iTunes. If you want to get in touch with me, fascinated at headstuff.org or at on Twitter. And if you like this episode, please share it on all of the socials. My thanks to Joe, to the Headstuff Podcast Network and to Bunsen Burgers. And also a very special thanks to Rachel Steen, who is Joe's assistant. There will be a live Fascinated podcast recorded at the Cork Comedy Festival in the green room of the Cork Opera House. Uh, Further details for that are on CorkComedyFest.com. There will be a new episode soon. And last but not least, very special thanks to you for listening. Now, not everything went according to plan on this one. There was a bit of a rocky start to the interview because when I arrived at the Leicester Square Theatre, I realised something was missing.
1: So you lost your laptop?
0: Yeah.
1: Actually properly lost it?
0: Yeah. This is terrible. <laughs> everything I say now about, like, missing people is going to say, like, missing laptop. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.